The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food health and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I am delighted to bring Mr. Michael Batts to our listeners. Michael Batts is with the University of Florida's Emerging Pathogens Institute, and he is an author on a report that is extremely interesting called Ranking the Risks, the 10 Pathogen Food Combinations with the Greatest Burden on Public Health. So, Michael, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Well, I love this report because as a dietitian, I sit and I see the reports about foodborne illness and consumers and what consumers can do in the home. And I just recently received a report that said one in five Americans are vulnerable to foodborne illness. I can't open my computer screen without seeing some recall, more deaths related to the produce of the day or the the foodborne illness of the day. So I want to know about this report. Let's start with what are the 10 most common pathogens that we find in our food supply that are causing the greatest problems? Well, I think just to step back a minute, you know, where where you talked about how we're inundated with all of these messages about problems going on, whether it's a recall of food or whether it's an outbreak that's even worse, they're happening all the time in products here or there, and it's kind of a, a torrent of, of all of this information It's hard to make sense of, and that's actually one of the purposes of our report is really directed at policymakers and looking at the whole food supply and saying, stepping back from this immediate alarm bell situation, you know, can we step back and look at this thing a little bit analytically, look across all of these different risks and see if we can kind of make sense of them to try to direct us towards which ones are actually the biggest as opposed to maybe the loudest. So did you want me to talk about the top 10 pathogens or the top 10 pathogen food combinations? They're sort of slightly different. They are, (laughs) yeah. Well, I guess in all fairness to our listeners, we want to know what's going to make us sick or what's most likely to make us sick. So when I asked about what are the top 10 pathogens, what I mean is, where are we most likely to get ill? What foods are the riskiest? And you've got several tables in the report that look at the biggies. And I guess asking you what the top 10 are is probably almost a little too broad because they really do narrow down. It's really the top five that seem to cause the most foodborne illness annually. So which are the foods that are of greatest concern, do you think, in our food supply? Well, I think there there are a few different ways to look at this. The first way is to say which of these things are causing uh, the greatest amount of disease. And that's a little bit different than saying uh, which of these things are the greatest risk to me as a consumer because things aren't always in averages. So people that are younger or older, immunocompromised or pregnant, for example, are more likely to come down with foodborne illness. So their risks are higher regardless. But then you also have, you know, for example, we show in our report that poultry is probably the leading food commodity in terms of overall disease illness caused. But of course, we eat a whole lot more poultry than we do, uh, for example, shellfish. 
Mm-hmm. So while I can say which things cause the most disease and which I think are the ones that we sort of as a whole society need to be focusing our limited, say, federal resources on, it's much more complicated for the consumer. And, and unfortunately, I wish I could give you a sort of simple answer as to these are the five foods to avoid. Um, right. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't know that I can really do that just because the, the numbers are, are very hard to parse out that way. Mm-hmm. But going back to poultry, we, we consume a lot of it, but we've known for a long time that it's, that it's a, a risky product associated with disease. So when we do the math and we look at multiple pathogens, so what we tried to do is look at, um, so CDC estimates about 50 million foodborne illnesses each year, which is averages out to about one in six Americans will come down with food poisoning each year. Mm. So what we do is we try to break that down into the pathogens. So some of them we're very familiar with, salmonella, listeria, norovirus, uh, which, you know, is the often thought of as the, the cruise ship uh, disease. But uh, looking across all of these things and then across all foods. And so we see campylobacter, uh, which is, is fairly common, and salmonella in poultry. Both of those in poultry both show up in our, in our top 10 uh, pathogen food pairs that, that cause the most disease burden. And do you think that most of that foodborne illness that's related to poultry in particular could be solved simply by changes in home food handling, you know, wiping the counter down, using a chlorine solution to sanitize countertops, washing hands, and cooking food thoroughly? Or do you think that, that the problem has really gone beyond what the, what the consumer does in the home? Well, I think that's exactly right. This is a complicated problem. You'll often hear people say food safety is simple, and it, it really isn't. I mean, these things are invisible. They grow uh, at different rates. They, you know, there's all these th- these things to consider. And and our kitchens are not controlled laboratories. You know, we're we're cooking in them, and um, you know, there are certain things that certainly we can do to help reduce risk. You know, we can cook our food properly. We can make sure that we're storing it properly. That our refrigerator is at the right temperature. That we're uh, washing our hands regularly, that we're not cross-contaminating produce by, for example, using the same knife or the same cutting board to to cut the chicken and then the and then the salad. So there are an awful, you know, the list of things that consumers can do is is quite big. But you're absolutely right. This is a systematic kind of a large system. I mean, you have to remember that food is now produced in a very global food supply where. The time from the farm, you know, we have the farm, you know, what's often called the farm-to-fork spectrum involves pathogens in these birds from the time they're born or from the farm, then they go through processing. They can contaminate each other during processing, then they're being distributed throughout this whole system until eventually they make it to the kitchen. And so then, yes, of course, there's certain things that, that the consumer can do in his or her own kitchen, but we also have to remember is that we're eating more and more of our meals uh, outside of the home. So mm-hmm. we're eating, you know, uh, roughly 50% of our food dollars are, are going to restaurants and towards other people uh, preparing our food. These are environments that are where folks might have more of a food safety system in place, but they're also under much uh, greater time pressures. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, people in kitchens that might not be able to take the day off if they're sick because they, they'll simply lose those wages. That's right. And, and so there's an awful lot of, of pieces to this puzzle about 
how we solve this problem, and only some of them are in the kitchen. Yeah, and you know, I have to tell, I'm going to tell you a little secret. For the last few times that I've been at conferences or out eating, I've been reluctant to eat the salad. Because even though I think most people kind of know that poultry is a, is a red flag kind of food, you know, the raw poultry, mm-hmm. but salad Bagged chopped greens, spinach. There were outbreaks over the past couple of years specifically linked to greens that simple washing would not take care of. And exactly so, right. yeah. and so that was another one of the, on your, on your finding the recommendations in the report, you categorized the foods that are most likely to cause problems. But it looks to me, and they're grouped together rather interestingly. So, for example, the poultry, pork, and beef are going to, you've got that in one category, causing about $5.7 billion of loss. And then we've got produce, dairy products, seafood, breads, beverages, and other multi-ingredient complex foods that are lumped together, causing about $6 billion worth of loss. Right, yeah. That split is... Essentially because uh, the federal government is, of course, not, well, not of course, but, you know, the FDA is in charge of some foods and USDA is in charge of other foods. So we we tried to break it up to look at, you know, their responsibilities over the pie. Do you think we need a single agency overseeing all food safety? Well, that's a, uh, a controversial issue. I guess what I would say is that in an ideal world, it's uh, hard for me to understand how anybody would argue against that. Uh, I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense from data sharing standpoint. You know, mm-hmm. we have information. We have, you know, for example, eggs are regulated by two different industries. There's the stories about the the sort of waste as well as the lack of communication of between the agencies are pretty well documented. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, I think in a practical way, it's not going to be very simple to just combine them in one agency because they have two di- very different the the legislation that 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 authorize them are completely different so it's a it'd be a mess to to convert them into one but if certainly if I was starting over uh, I know what I would do right all right let's get back to the title of this report which is the 10 pathogen food combinations with the greatest burden on public health and one of the questions I wanted to ask you simply based on this title, was how do you measure burden on public health? Exactly. I mean, that, that is really probably the central challenge we face. So what we have are we have all of these pathogens, as I said, you know, everything from Listeria, Salmonella, E. coli O157, Cryptosporidium. I mean, there's, there's 14 of them that we modeled. And how do we compare them, right? So mm-hmm. the challenge we face is if we say, if we just count the number of illnesses, that can be kind of misleading because some diseases are obviously much more serious than others. So one example of that is is norovirus, which is the most common foodborne illness. It's a, as I said, a lot of people are, um, have heard of it because it becomes associated with these cruise ships and so forth. It's a, a human bug that transfers very easily person to person. So CDC estimates that about 5.5 million uh, Americans come down with norovirus each year which is a huge number, the the largest number. But if you compare that to something like listeria, where an estimated only 1,600 people get listeriosis annually, that's a huge difference in numbers, but at the same time, listeria kills 
almost mm. twice as many people as norovirus. So it's much more serious in terms of if you had a case. You know, for example, if, if somebody says you can have a case of foodborne illness, which one do you want? I know which one I would pick. I know exactly which ones I wouldn't pick. So for our challenge was we have to be able to compare these things because they each happen, you know, different numbers of people get sick with all of these different things. Uh, there's a huge amount of uncertainty because uh, very few people actually go to the doctor with illness, and then there's something called the surveillance pyramid to describe this this lack of reporting of foodborne illness. So to be able to compare these things, we used two methods. One was dollars. Uh, which we call cost of illness, and that reflects medical costs, lost wages or productivity losses, as well as basically loss of life through uh, you know putting a dollar, associating a dollar with deaths, which is you know somewhat controversial, depending on how you frame it, and uh, you know we can talk about that if you want, but but basically in part because it is so controversial to do that, it's useful because it helps us put things in perspective to other things going on in the world. One of the other measures we use are called quality-adjusted life years. So while dollars are controversial because they're very concrete in terms of the fact that we use them every day, which makes them a useful measure, qualities are a bit more abstract, but they get away from some of that. So the the basic idea behind a quality is that um, you can compare health states because uh, you can consider your quality of life or your health-related quality of life on a scale from zero to one, where zero is death and uh, one is perfect health. And actually, in in surveys, they find that people do uh, find negative values, basically mm. health states worse than death. Um, mm. And so, uh, a lot of a lot of methods are used to basically take a set of symptoms and associate it with a, a score on that scale. So, if you if you're paralyzed, for example. You've got your 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 quality of life is much lower than if you have you know mild nausea, vomiting, and you know other gastroenteritis symptoms that that aren't really impeding your your ability to live your life. So, what these qualities allow us to do is put these very different pathogens on the same you know on the same metric. So we're comparing apples to apples mm-hmm. uh, in some ways. So we do these two. Things and, and what we can do with those is it basically treats. Um, we're essentially weighing really serious health states such as death or stillbirths or uh, you know some of the very serious uh, diseases that can happen with children that are infected uh, in the womb due to listeria or another pathogen called uh, toxoplasma that can result in lifelong disabilities, um, mm. either mental or physical, and. You know, it allows us to try to capture all of these things uh, beyond just sort of the visible idea of somebody, you know, simply getting sick. It allows us to try to put these things on a, on a, on a comprehensive scale. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Michael Batts. He is a researcher at the University of Florida's Emerging Pathogens Institute and one of the authors of a new interesting report called Ranking the Risks, the 10 Pathogen Food Combinations with the Greatest Burden on Public Health. Well, Michael, I'm sitting here with one of the ranking systems that you've got. So you've ranked the sure. foodborne pathogens based on estimates of this quality of life tool of assessment with regard to loss and cost of illness. And salmonella is number one, followed by toxoplasma, 
Campylobacter, Listeria, norovirus, and E. coli. And there are others of much lesser loss. And when I think, though, of what I'm reading in the newspaper, Salmonella rises to the top and Campylobacter, uh, not, not as much, but Listeria, and perhaps that's just because I'm thinking of the foods that have caused the largest food recalls. So the peanut butter recall was huge. That was salmonella related. The, right. the greens are either E. coli or salmonella. The cantaloupe, the recent recalls and deaths nationwide of cantaloupes, and, and those deaths continue to come up on my computer screen. That was a listeria issue. And the interesting thing about listeria is that it grows in refrigerator temperatures. So that tells me as a consumer I've just lost that one control method, right, of reducing that exactly. risk. And then, of course, there's the, the holiday foods, the, the poultry, the salmonella-related, and the ground beef, the undercooked ground beef. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones I read about. Where does the toxoplasma come from? Well, no, it's a very good point. I think it's the big, one of the challenges we face in trying to take our analysis and explain it to people. One way to think about this is that we're seeing only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we're seeing very, very few of foodborne diseases are actually visible. So if you think about this in terms of visibility, when we have outbreaks, especially nationwide outbreaks that make the news, they're, they're sort of the ones we hear about. So one way people describe illness is that you have these outbreaks in which a very large number of people, although an, an outbreak can be very small, but you have these large outbreaks, and they tend to be larger uh, when they happen with produce, in part because there is no what's called a kill step. There's no control. You know, Once they're contaminated, uh, there's very little uh, people can do other than, you know, cooking your spinach or things like that, you know, cooking your cantaloupe. Right. Actually, I did read on the Internet where some guy was talking about taking a butane torch to the outside of all of his cantaloupes <laughs> to essentially uh, to be safe. kill it with fire. But, um, no, so, so what happens is pathogen, some pathogens are much more likely to happen in outbreaks, and, and some pathogens are more likely to occur in the smaller, smaller, you know, what, smaller cases of illness or sporadic cases of illness. So, you know, there's all, because problems can happen anywhere, in the food system, that you know, not all pathogens grow the same. Like as you mentioned, listeria grows in a refrigerator conditions, so it tends to have a different sort of impact than other ones. So, Toxoplasma gondii is a parasite. So, most of the others are Campylobacter, Listeria, and Salmonella are, are bacteria. Toxoplasma is a parasite, and it's typically associated with cats. That's sort of the historical connection and it and its true reservoir sort of where it, it its natural host historically uh, pre- it's one of the pathogens that pregnant women are told to avoid it's you know pregnant women are often told not to change the kitty litter and so forth right uh, so historically toxoplasma is associated with cats and it's always been recognized as a risk for pregnant women in part because like listeria it can cause it can cause miscarriage it can cause stillbirth it can cause uh, very serious just horrible uh, impacts on, on, on children when, when parents are, or when the mothers are, are exposed uh, during pregnancy. Unfortunately, with toxoplasma, we don't have very good information on how often it's coming through food. Mm. And, and one of the reasons for that is that unlike a bacteria like 
some of these other ones, you're, you know, even listeria, you might get sick two months later. With norovirus, it's usually a day or two. With toxoplasma, it can be years because what happens is it essentially lays dormant in your system and then it blooms essentially when you become immunocompromised. Oh. And so it's often been associated with AIDS patients. Mm-hmm. Um, have uh, It's been one of the major risks for, for people with HIV to avoid. And unfortunately, we don't have great information on, on how it's coming through food, but CDC does estimate, you know, they estimate Toxoplasma gondii to cause more illnesses, more hospitalizations, and 15 times more deaths annually than E. coli and 157. Well, that's why so I it's was... happening, but we're just not seeing it because it's not, you know, it's not associated with recalls, and it, it, they're happening years later from exposure, and uh, they're often happening to people with other health problems. Right. That's what surprised me so much to see it listed as number two on your chart of ra- on this particular ranking chart. It's like, well, I don't really read about that. All right, let's talk about foodborne illness as it relates to this occurrence later in life. So a person has an infection with a particular pathogen. They may have diarrhea and vomiting. We expect that. That's pretty typical with regard to symptoms. When they show up is interesting. You know, we expect it to happen. You know, we think we get sick and we think, okay, what did I just eat? And it can be days, weeks prior. But yeah, usually the thing that people thought got them sick is, is not exactly but what really interests me are these latent diseases especially arthritis for example reactive arthritis that's related to certain foodborne pathogens and so when you're estimating the burden i mean i almost feel like you've got this impossible task we can't possibly have all the numbers because we've all known people who get sick or they either don't report it or they attribute it to i don't know i got a stomach flu so we, we have an idea of how many people get sick, but I think it's a gross underestimate. And then we're trying to tap into, well, how much does this really cost us in terms of quality of life and sickness and cost of illness? Because how can we possibly track all the sources for latent disease? For example, arthritis. How many physicians, for example, are connecting those dots between somebody who comes into the office with knee or joint pain and what they may have eaten I don't know, how long ago might that take to show up? Yeah, and and I think your point is exactly right, and it gets back to this issue of what we see as being visible and invisible. So one of the issues is that when we get sick with some mild, if we have a mild illness, we don't don't go to the doctor. And on the off chance that we do, which is usually going to happen if when things get more serious, even if you go to the doctor, the doctor might not actually diagnose you via blood test or you know, a stool sample, so they then that might not be tested for the right pathogen, and then, of course, there's errors in laboratory tests. So there's all these factors that lead to uh, what, what folks in, in public health call under-ascertainment. But in addition to that, you're absolutely right that things like reactive arthritis or uh, irritable bowel syndrome or any host of, of other things that happen, what are called the long-term health outcomes or chronic sequelae, or there's other terms for these things that happen subsequent to acute illness. Those are also often, all too often, invisible to us. We don't have very good measures on, you know, even when we know that there are associations, we don't know, say, what the the likelihood is that if you get foodborne illness, you're going to get some of these other things. We do have some of that data, but there's a lot we don't know. 
And if you look at uh, some folks like Stop Foodborne Illness and and others who uh, you know consumer groups who have looked at say E. coli and one five seven and these long term health outcomes that happen, a lot of them are you know diabetes. You have uh, issues that people that are uh, affected young in life than having problems getting, say, pregnant as an adult. So the number of these things that, that can happen, the scope of these long-term kind of chronic latent issues uh, are really there, and, and we really don't sort of have a great grasp on those. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know they're there, but we, we they're very hard to measure, in part because you're right. People don't always go to the doctor, and, and if they do, it's it's very hard to, to make that association. It's... Uh, it takes a lot of research, and and I I do think it's warranted to do that. I think if, if if people are getting sick through their food, that's a vector that we need to be able to to control and and to know you know where this stuff is coming from. If we really want a, a proactive preventative food safety system or a, uh, you know a preventive healthcare system, you know that's a big part of it. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left, and we could go in all sorts of directions, but I want to give you a chance to summarize or, or leave our listeners with a point that I may not have tapped into? Well, sure. That's a that's an open, uh, <laughs> you leave me quite an opening. I wish I had something uh, brilliant to say. I guess I would say that uh, I know it can be incredibly frightening to hear about all these things. I talk about them very lackadaisically because I think about them all, all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I think the message that I'd like to impart is that if you step back from this, you can see that, yes, there are some real risks here. Uh, some of which are outside the consumer's control, some of which are. And, um, you know, I think as long as we continue to get better information about where these things are happening and we can push our food safety system to do a better job at addressing them, you know, we continually uh, try to reduce these risks. A number of these, although they are very serious, a number of these pathogens that we've talked about today are on the decline, are much lower than they were, say, 10 years ago, even though we might hear about them more uh, due to just, you know, the the way the news works and the way our surveillance systems are getting better at identifying these things. Uh, I don't think this is a problem that's epidemic in the sense that uh, it's getting worse and worse, but it is a challenge that we do need to marshal our resources to address. And I don't know if that uh, helps people sleep at night, but, but certainly, you know, Knowing what I know, I I still uh, eat quite well. Do you have a favorite website that you want to lead our listeners to? Well, I do think that the the foodsafety.gov website has a lot of information on it. Uh, It's the the federal, you know, there's a lot of websites out there pointing you to to information. And, uh, you know, a host, I I think foodsafety.gov is probably the best. There's a lot of good advice on there for uh, preparing holiday meals, for example. And uh, I, I think that you know it's it's pretty simple to uh, go on there and get say a few a few lessons about about what you can do uh, to try to make yourself safer. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for your time today. We need to revisit this topic again and again because there's just so many fascinating points in your report. Listeners, we have been speaking with Michael Batts. He is a researcher at the University of Florida's Emerging Pathogens Institute. And what led me to want to interview him was this wonderful report. It's fascinating called Ranking the Risks, the 10 Pathogen Food Combinations with the Greatest Burden on Public Health. So you can just Google that and that report comes up and 
but it can create a lot of alarming and interesting reading. In closing, I want to thank you, Michael, for being with me today, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.